0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo López, and today I'm joined by Dr. Bart Wilson. He's the Donald P. Kennedy Endowed Chair in Economics and Law at Chapman University. He's a founding member of the Economic Science Institute and founding member and director of the Smith Institute for Political Economy and Philosophy. His research uses experimental economics to explore the foundations of exchange and specialization, and the Origins of Property. Another of his research programs compares decision-making in humans, apes, and monkeys. He is the author of The Property Species, Mine, Yours, and the Human Mind, and we're going to focus most of our conversation today on that book and also other topics like the ones I've mentioned. So, Bart, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. On.
1: Oh, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me
0: okay great so uh, let's talk about property so i mean what is property from an evolutionary perspective and i think it makes sense to ask you this question because since you also study other species apart from humans i mean uh how, how should we think about it from an evolutionary perspective
1: so we tend to in everyday language Take the concepts that we have in humanity and apply them throughout the animal world, and I think property is one of those things. So if we see our dog kind of protecting its toy, or we, we're primatologists, we watch baboons and we see that they have harems and they respect the females in the different harems, or if you are watching scrub jays and they will rehide food caches if another scrub jay is watching and when it goes away, and so we tend to think, oh, look properties all over the the um, animal kingdom and and there are these like effects that we see because we don't want we don't like things being taken from our grasp and neither do dolphins liking their prey being taken from their grasp and so we think oh this might be pretty widespread um but i i make the case that just because the effects are similar doesn't mean that how it works is the same. And that might be some things that we categorically do differently that are just not possible in the rest of the animal kingdom. And I think the challenge then for me in, in, in writing the book was to make that gap. Then how is it that I can get to notions of property that are similar, but then have this categorical leap that's happens here is why humans are fundamentally different. And the key for that is to trace through our other primate cousins, like what is kind of the commonalities, what are the commonalities we see with chimpanzees and then say monkeys, and then that kind of kind of falls apart when you go beyond that that you don't quite see. And so that was kind of the start. I, I really wanted to show that there was this, this kind, of, kind of history that would tie us up to humanity, and then show, oh, then what's the spark of difference? So the, the, the part that is ties us back is this notion of that we um, socially teach our young how to do things. So um, primates are notoriously good at being flexible with the social rules they teach each other. Uh, you know, we're fascinated by the Japanese macaques that teach different ways to wash their food, their potatoes in the water. And and orangutans will make tools for getting out food and hammer and anvil tools are used by uh, chimpanzees and um, and capuchin monkey monkeys and so um, they that's just pretty we love those stories because they are so different from the rest of the animal kingdom and and they're all socially taught like they're not born with those things they have to be taught those things. and i thought that was the common theme with how property works. We have to teach all of our kids what property is. It has to be socially taught. <laughs> they aren't born with it. They don't know what um, how property works. They like they grab everything, <laughs> and so they claim everything as mine. And, and so that was the common feat that it, common thread I saw between nonhumans and humans, and particularly in the primate world. But that isn't quite enough because we do a whole lot more with our things than non-humans. And for me, this was kind of stressed to me by Matt Ridley when I read his book 10 years ago, The Rational Optimist, where he goes to great lengths to show that, look, uh, no other hum- no other species trades one thing for another thing. Now, Matt was just re- re- repackaging what Adam Smith knew a long time ago, <laughs> but it kind of had fallen out. We just, we didn't really kind of take that seriously. And that is what property is kind of fundamentally different that I can take a thing, oops, and um, like a pen, and then I can say, this is not mine, this is yours. And, And that's what no other animal does. They don't trade these things. You say, this is not mine, it's about yours, and we switch it. And so we have to, how do we get to that part? And that's where I came with the kind of expressing what's special about humans and it's this notion of abstract thought symbolic thought that you can teach young chimpanzees some very basic abstract thought processes how to just sort things or how to communicate with an abstract thought with verbs and nouns and things like that for food but they don't use it themselves. They have to be taught to it by symbolic thinking humans. And um, for us, it just comes right out of raising our kids. And it's that spark of symbolic thought that I argue is important to makes property work. That I see this thing and I give it abstract features that are based upon what I've been taught by my members of my community and family and friends. And so, that is what makes property different, that I perceive the things differently in an abstract way than any other animal perceives the things, its food, mates, and territory. And I'll just say one, one last thing that, that makes that different, then, is we, do, we treat things as property beyond food, mates, and territory. We treat tools and these, all these other things that persist beyond right here and now. And that, I think, is the key part. When a chimpanzee puts down its, its, its stones that it's used for hammer and anvil, it's not going to defend them when it walks off. <laughs> it doesn't care. It's used them. It's over. It's done. Now, if you try to take it out of its hand while it's using it, that might be a different thing. But I'm, but that's not how property works. I lay this pen down. I expect other people who know that this is mine to respect that as mine because they look at it and give it these abstract qualities of being owned.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, uh, does it have anything to do with the endowment effect, and perhaps you could explain that effect i mean is there a relationship between the endowment effect and how we think about property
1: that's a that 's a very interesting question so part of what i think where I think property comes from is that we take tools and they become an extension of ourselves, and so think of um, you know, take a cane and you close your eyes and you knock around, you're looking around for the tape and you hit the table. Your mind makes it feel as if you're feeling through the end of the cane, like you felt the table. But what you really felt was the cane, the palm, the vibrations in your hand. But your mind reorganizes it such that the cane was a part of you. We do this all the time. When you put on a backpack and you walk around, all of a sudden you realize that you are bigger than just. <laughs> this physical body, it's got this thing around and I i feel that kind of through that. So that part, I think is that's pretty ancient. And there's evidence that chimpanzees can do that too. Like, when they're punching a, a probe through a, a termite hill, they can feel when they get the open chamber, because the termites don't make that easy. It's not straight in, it's got to be gonna poke around. And so they can their minds doing some of that reorganization. And so I think that is pretty that could be pretty ancient so that if something's in my hand is valued and I'm going to defend this and I recognize it as kind of a front to me if you start to take it from. So I think that's part of what's going on the endowment effect where if I have something in my grass I'm not willing to part with it I'm I have to get more to part with it than if I'm going to buy it (laughs) and it's not a part of me. And so I think half of the endowment effect might be this notion of putting yourself into your things. Why then we're not willing to part with it. Um, I would argue and say chimpanzees, which have been shown to have the endowment effect. It's because they really can't think outside here and now to think, oh, I have this or I have that. Let me think about what I'm willing to trade for these kind of things. It's they can't get that abstract notion. And so that's what that type notion is important for humans and we still have that kind of I would say we call it bias, you know, a kind of a a notion that this is mine and I'm in it and that's different than things that I'm not in. And that is property works. So we start calling things mine and there's a difference between those and others. <laughs> and now and so I think you raise an interesting question to kind of really think about it, explore what that means and about what it takes to put yourself into something and then being willing to part with it. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's a really interesting uh, connection you made there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how do we decide uh, whose property a particular object is? I, I mean, because we could use several different heuristics, right? Like, for example, the first to take it, the first to use it, the first to create it right
1: well
0: so and that's that's why
1: i make the case in kind of the opening claim of the first line of the in the chapter one that property at its core is a custom that it's we're taught these rules and we kind of get there's some of it's going to be biologically given to us but how our know that we all this have in common the same way our brains work and therefore we're going to have some commonalities through, through biology but the way that comes out with all these different human groups around the world could be expressed very differently, what those rules are. And these human communities have to figure out what's the best way to settle disputes between mine and and yours. And as you point out, we could come up with a lot of different rules for that. Um, So it could be the first to grab it, or it could be the first who's found it and is in pursuit of it. And that's kind of the basis of some famous court cases where that's what it came down to. Two people deciding, had a conflicting views of what's the rule, and the court has to come to a conclusion. And that, for me, that just shows the flexibility of it. The custom is out there. And then there are these meta rules going to be operating, very um, Robert Ellickson's ideas of kind of um, order without law, that we're going to have these costs of coming up with deciding what the rules are. And that's gonna influence the shape of the ultimate rules that we decide upon. So um, for him, the case was whales. So um, right whales were off the coast of North Atlantic. They are baleen. When you harpoon them, they don't dive. They're, they were called right whales, R-I-G-H-T, because they were the right whale to hunt, because they they don't dive, they're easy to get, they don't fight. And they swim right close to the surface and so they put your harpoon in the whale and you attach it to your boat that's your whale now if you're somehow kind of inept at it and it gets away or you've got a particularly feisty one or whatever and it gets away then it was anyone else can go after that whale and so that just seemed to be very easy it's easy to recognize like oh i can see it there leave that one alone i'll go find my other one plus they also were big groups pods. And so they're going to be, you know, plenty of them around to go after. Well, when whaling moved off the coast of North America, Alexon noted that well, uh, they had a different rule that came about because the prey was different. They had sperm whales. Sperm whales have teeth, and when you harpoon them, they dive. <laughs> so unless you put some a drogue on there with that harpoon, you're not going to find that thing because this is going to dive down below you. Plus, it also had teeth that would railing ships are not those big thing ships we see today. These things were small next to these Leviathan and they, you know, they could attack it. So they came up with a new rule. And so the idea is if the, if you had a harpoon in it and you were in pursuit of it, you could see that drogue that you're tra- that you're um, following that was your way. So it was pursuit. It wasn't actually having it kind of under control and in your grasp. So the rule changed. And it changed because the ecological conditions changed and the costs of having one rule were too high to have in the other rule. And that's kind of an important part why different groups of people can have different rules of property because the world around them is different. Their customs are different. um, And so you're going to have different um, rules to settle conflicts of property come about in different
0: Right. So in different communities, we find different rules. But is it, do we know of any society out there which completely lacks the notion of property?
1: Well, so mid-century anthropologists had, several of them kind of came to the conclusion that every society has some minimal set of things. And it could be really minimal compared to, say, Western European societies about probably tools, utensils and ornaments about which people can say, this is mine. So it could be very small things. And generally, they'd be things that one individual could make by themselves, which are what ornaments would be, or you put or or, or simple tools like um, spears and things like that. Um, and that could be this as small as it is set, maybe it's or clothes and stuff like that. Or wait, way to adorn your bodies. But that that could be it and everything else you got to be community wide if you got to go out and hunt the mammoth. You're gonna go hunting the polar bear if you're up in, in Alaska. Uh, that's a joint exercise. So no one's going to be able to claim that prey as it's their own. And so, um, so so I think there's pretty much evidence every community will have something and it's generally again tools. And, and, and that's the common theme that I, you know, I read some anthropology, You see tools, you see uh, what's special about primates Their flexibility with tools. There are these things that keep themes that come up that I argue of tell one cohesive story about property. But once you have this abstract idea, and you apply it to something really small, you can maybe then think about applying it to other things. And that's kind of the Western European traditions start applying property all over the place we apply it to land we apply it, now we apply it to ideas um this this i copyright this idea this is mine um so it becomes a very with abstract thought it's very flexible in its applications
0: mm-hmm. uh, does the way we think about property have any relationship with uh, I mean, how we think about sharing and how we share with other people.
1: Well, so that there are going to be things about which no one can say this is mine. And that's, so there'll be domains about where you can and there'll be domains like if you have to build a house together, that no one can say this house is mine. Um, And which, But there clearly will be a group of people who will then say that you can't use this. (laughs) Um, And so sharing is related because it's a list of things about which you don't claim as mine. And there's going to be a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. You Share the hunt. If you have to hunt together, you have to share that. No one gets to claim that as their own.
0: Right, and what about pub- public goods? Because we also have those. I mean, is there a sense of a of collective property attached to them?
1: So, so the 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 thing what when you attach property to, it's because it's generally rivalrous. So again, like again, take a tool. It it, it only goes so far. It extends, you know, there's going to inside and outside in a in a border. And that's where it ends. And the whole economic problem of public goods is, it doesn't end, there's no border. <laughs> there's no excluding other people, it's just, it's, all, it's, it's, it's just out there. And I think what um, public goods highlight is, are the, again, those physical parts of the world and, and our communities that don't have boundaries, that no one can claim as mine, and, or haven't been able to claim as mine, or technology hasn't allowed us to claim it as mine. And therefore, we got this other problem.
0: Right. In the book, you also talk about, if I remember correctly, I mean, at a certain point there, you mentioned, for example, abstract concepts that we use, and that's one of the ways we differ from other animals, namely primates in this case. Um, I think you also talk about things like language and how we think about what is right and what is wrong. So why are these things also connected to property?
1: Well, So when i read from some literature and linguistics that every human society has these basic core semantic concepts. So you, so you, whatever language, whatever human community you could study, they're going to have this idea of you, this concept of you. And you means you, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything else, you can't break it down. I means I, um, feel means feel, good means good. Well, another one of those concepts is mine, that you can say, this is mine. And that that that's universal, but it's also abstract because it's predicated on something else, all the customs, that you've been taught about when you can do that, when you can make that claim. And that's again a difference with non-humans. So, you know, a dog grafts something and has it in its toy in its mouth, it clearly wants the toy. <laughs> we would say we want the you know that's what the dog wants the toy. And we might also say, well the dog is claiming it's mine. What I'm arguing is that I want this and this is mine means something different to us. And probably not distinguishable what's going on in the mind of a dog. (laughs) And that want is abstract when we call it I want this we're saying something abstract. And I say this is mine is abstract when a dog is just growling at the prey that it's trying to defend. (laughs) That's not saying anything except I'm going to fight you if you try to go for this. That's not actually saying that. It's a signal. It's a sign. Whereas I want this. I say those words. It's an abstract idea that's out there that then gets applied to the physical world around me. And I want this and this is mine means something different, as every kid learns from their parents (laughs) with great disappointment that I want this and this is mine are not the same thing.
0: Right. Uh, and I mean, I, I also asked you about, I mean, how we think about what is right and what is wrong. So is property always moralized?
1: Well, so, uh, yeah, I would argue that, yes, when I make a claim and I say this is mine, that's a moral claim. Um, okay. That if you then do something that's inconsistent with that claim, that you are then doing something immoral or you're, you're, you've harmed I would argue it's a harm. Like, if this is my pen and then you take the pen, I'm now no longer, I no longer have this physical object. I am worse off than I was when you, before you took it. And so that's where I argue property kind of has its moral part is that when I make these claims, and more importantly, when other people respect them and they back me up on this, and then somebody violates that, that's when we get. They those people who respect my claim and and acknowledge my claim and then a third party like you don't, then we're going to morally judge you. I resent that harm. They join me in that resentment of that harm and then we're going to do something about it. And that's where property gets off the ground, because now we're going to have we have a fight on our hands (laughs) and fights can't we can't have too many fights. Otherwise, communities break down, particularly if you're part of our community and you decided to, to take this thing. And that, that's all kind of the final cause of property is how do we get people not to fight? Because if we're fighting, we're more vulnerable to attack from outsiders and, or we're, gonna, and we're destroying stuff. We, you know, we're, we're destroying each other by killing people over things. And so it, at its core, it's moral because it's a, we take it as a part of ourselves and that it's a, it, it, this makes me more fit for the purposes that I want to use. For. So, big question is how we decide when there is a conflict between you and me, what the right rule is. And that's where I to talk the notion of what, what what is right. It's an old idea. Um, um, kind of t- you can tie it back to uh, old Latin. Um, this concept of use, I U um, S, or can be spelled with J U um, S, and you're getting close to what you mean by the word just. But it also means right, and it also can mean law. And all of those concepts together are, are have a notion of morality with them. That 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 this is this is um, to violate that what is right is to be injust, unjust. And so um, an injury is an in use. I N J U S. <laughs> uh and and so um, those so morality is, is right there in its core and particularly when we're dealing with these things that are rivalrous and everyone can use and there's violence that can come out of it. We we're coming up with ideas like, okay, what is the peaceful way should be what is and that's what I mean by what is right what should be the rule because you could be not just bad people right you know there might be just bad people who want to take things from other people or we're, we come into a new situation and we both have expectations but they differ and when they could be good-faith expectations and we're still gonna to have to have a solution because if they keep keep coming into conflict like this going to waste time on conflicts as opposed to doing other more productive things
0: right yeah uh, i mean another concept that goes associated with property that you also study in human societies we also exchange goods so uh, taking into account all we've been talking about about uh, property uh, how did exchange develop in human societies so,
1: I so my part of my big argument that culminates in the end of the book is, um, is that property is the core of how at core of economics, and why that might not be revolutionary because people are going to read me or think that as saying, he means property rights, and I'm like, no, no, I mean property, <laughs> just property, just the idea that I can say this is mine. Other people know that what I say is true. And no one else can say this is mine. That part of it, which then relies on other people to be able to say about their things, this is mine, which means I have to say that is yours. So property is not just me saying this is mine, property is my respecting you and saying that is yours. And once you have that, but now I can imagine a future where you have something I really want. Notice you didn't claim mine, but you really want. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have something you re- that, that you, and then, I'm, you, have, you have something I really want, and I have something you really want. And we change want into exchange so that we both can then claim those things as mine. So that means I have to go through this process of laying things down. and This is what is amazing about humans. Humans can exchange things and not even have the same. They can't even communicate because they can't. They don't speak the same language, but they can put things down on the shore, go back to their ships, and then other people move things around and move them along and move things around. And what we're doing is we're working and we're saying, all right, this is not mine. That is yours. And you're saying the same thing this is not mine that is yours about something else and now we have trade and so trade relies on us voluntarily changing the very things themselves and saying this is no longer mine this is yours and this is no longer yours this is mine that's that's exchange and that's the core of economics without exchanging of things, we're like every other animal on the planet. But when we can exchange stuff, then we can specialize in stuff, and we can create more stuff, and we can come up with new ideas on creating more stuff, and we create this dynamic process that then leads us to be you know, as wealthy and the only species in the history of the planet to kind of increase our, um, lo- the lo- our longevities at birth, expected longevities, to make our lives more comfortable, to uh, and to re- basically reduce poverty and to create something called prosperity where we're all not just scraping by just to survive.
0: Right. And so can we say that property is at the basis of economics?
1: That is my, that is my claim, that without mine, we don't get, this is not mine, that is yours. And a mutual exchange and a mutual um, exchange of such claims. And if you don't have that, you can't really trade. Otherwise, you're just taking. Uh, and, and, you know, taking is also, unfortunately, a, a grand tradition of, of human societies. Um, and it's not any different than any other animals. You know, there's lots of taking uh, If you watch chimpanzees, they will love to scheme away around to take things from other ones if they can get away with it. Um, so the thing is, if we can get this off the ground, where we're not fighting over things, but trading things and being better off, that's the core of what economics is. And it starts with mine. It changes wants into mine. And, and you do it through exchange.
0: Mm-hmm. Does how we think about property have any relationship with theft?
1: Yes, because if the rules of claiming mine, the opposite of that is people not respecting those things, and then we call that theft. So, um, and so, the general rule that we learn as kids, and again, it's an abstract rule, is don't steal. And you'll notice it's in the negative, because it'll apply all over to different things. It'll apply when you're in the grocery store, store. It'll apply when you're in the department store. It'll apply when you go to your neighbor's house do not steal place all of those things. And it's in the negative, that you just can't claim things that other people call mine. And so when you violate that, that's what we call theft. So there isn't really property without the idea that there's non unjust ways to claim things as mine. So those two, they're, 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 they have to go together. Mm
0: -hmm. Do uh, trade and exchange have anything to do with how specialization originated?
1: So well, so within a within a family, there's already specialization, and that kind of okay. goes back. I mean, if you just go within biology itself, there's going to be the male part contributing to biology of re- reproduction, and then a female part of this. So there's already been this kind of separation. And they do different things, you know. And the males chimpanzees are bigger because they got to defend the group than the females and things like that. So there's specialization. Is you know, go to beehives. They got drones. They got queens. They got um, workers. And so there's specialization out there. But what was unique about humans is that we could take trade and then exploit it even further. So. These can't then take it advantage and go one step further because they can't trade. They're just got, they got their own little part. They contribute to this, this whole, but with humans, our own little part, we can discover something new and then keep by specializing in it, create more stuff that then allows other people to use that specialization to create more stuff. And if we keep doing that trading and we keep coming up with new ideas, then we're going to create more stuff than any other any beehive can create. And so, and all of that relies on these peaceful notions of well, that's mine and that's yours. Once it's if mine and mine and thine are up for grabs, then then why am I going to build more stuff uh, if somebody's just going to take it? And, and so you don't get specialization without mine. And I think that's um, kind of part of it, uh, of kind of all the magnificent things you start seeing in human history start happening around this general area of, you know, 100,000 some years ago, where you start seeing ornaments, you start seeing all these abstract ideas. That's when you first start seeing like um, opal being transmitted over long distances. That's got to be going through hand-to-hand trading kind of thing. And that that then allows exchange to kind of get off the ground. And then what happens, you know, in the, in, in the, in the, in the Middle East, you get, you get around that area where all of a sudden you got a river, you got hills and you can, you got, um, wheat growing, and you can hunt, and you can do all these things together. And also, you get these first, these first cities come about, because everyone's specializing, And they're doing that specialization, and then trading that stuff. They start trading their, 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 the meat they hunt from for the grain that's produced by by the um, by the estuaries and things like that. So you don't get extensive Strange and specialization without kind of understanding the boundaries that come with mine and dying.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you've already alluded to this before, but uh, what is the difference between property and property rights?
1: So, if you look up the, just the use of the word property rights, and I was surprised by this because, uh, you know, in the, uh, when I started working on experiments, laboratory experiments with looking at what, property, I was thinking of it as in terms of property rights, like, oh, because that's just the language we use. We talk about our introductory textbooks are all about property rights. We say property rights all over the place. And and then I thought, well, I'm reading uh, John Locke. He doesn't use the phrase property rights. I read James Madison. He doesn't talk about property rights. They, they just use the word property. I'm like, so... Somehow, property evolved into, or the we use the word property a lot, and then it changed into property rights. And if you look at the usage of that term, it just starts to take off in the late 19th century. So, property rights is something new. Now, that in itself doesn't mean it's different than property. Like, it just might mean the word has changed, and we pick up a new word, and we're using it. But I argue, I want to argue that property rights is something that Really, is part of a a macro level concept for a macro level organization of a bunch of groups of people united through, say, uh, through, a, through a governmental system. But property that can't be the origin because we had property of mine and thine in exchange well before there were governments around. Mm-hmm. So um, and so, property. I would I want to make the distinction is something smaller, more local, and the part that is taught to kids. So kids don't not steal things in grocery stores, because the police are gonna arrest them. (laughs) They steal, they don't steal because their parents tell them not to, and if not, the parents are going to punish them for it. And so it's not the government that teaches those basic rules. We teach it to our kids, and we learn it on the playground. We, we learn it from interacting somewhere from somewhere, but it's not being taught to us in the penal code. And that, and so that's why I make the distinction between property and property rights, that it's a social way of settling conflicts at a really local level of an individual in their community. And a community, kind of the people that you know by name, that you could kind of know and recognize that way. Property rights then, You get all these communities, and these communities want to take advantage of exchange and specialization. You want to unite these communities together. Well, now you're going to have different notions of what is right on dealing with these things. And in the trading, and you're going to get conflicts. And so if we have a common government, we might then start specifying these things out legally through court cases or through legislation. And that's what I would call is a property right, that it's something at this macro level of organization is dependent on the local customs that we teach. And it's that part that I think we get lost in our um, textbooks. That when we read, we introduce principles of economics to people, and we say we got to have governments to protect property rights, because otherwise, people will steal. I'm like, I I mean, that's a nice high level way of talking about it. But it's a lot of slippage there between how it actually works. Because I learned to steal not from having the police show up at my door, but from, from my parents, and they learn from their parents. And, and so that concept kind of at the core of an individual and their communities, what I would argue is property. And then we build on it to do other things politically when our societies start growing and becoming bigger and bigger.
0: Yeah, is there anything special about intellectual property?
1: well so intellectual property is a problem because we want to think of it like we think about physical things but they're not physical things <laughs> right. so 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 the first the first objects of property are in tools that means it's predating property in land now you can see how you can go from tools to land because they both have boundaries right you can put little stakes in the ground And just like the pen, the stakes in the ground are gonna date mine, yours, okay? So it seems to kind of work. But there's a little difference. Pens move around, land doesn't. But that doesn't seem to maybe get in the way. But that's not, you know, when there's a early court case where a farmer, when planes were discovered and started flying, discovered how to fly, planes are flying over my land, the farmer's saying, no, no, you can't fly over my land because my this is mine goes all the way up. <laughs> and this is an old kind of Roman saying, and all the way to the middle of the earth. And we're like, uh, no. So land created these kind of differences, and we kind of work our way out of them. But we go to an idea. We're no longer have these nice boundaries. There's no inside. There's no outside. It's just kind of out there. And that's the central tension of intellectual property, because I can't claim the end of it. And that's the whole game of submitting to patents, putting into words and drawing the line between where you can say this is mine and and that's not mine. And so intellectual property is the problem that it is because it doesn't have boundaries, but yet we're still going to use that same concept of mine to apply to it. The idea is mine. It's kind of Orphis out there i don't know where it ends but i'm gonna call it mine and, and and so that's where we get all these conflicts and so we start we have this whole partial um whole sections of law dedicated to trying to spell that out and basically creating boundaries to try to create boundaries where there are none they're all purely abstract boundaries
0: mm-hmm. And I mean, talking about intellectual property, does the production of knowledge benefit in any way from protecting intellectual property?
1: So, well, that's a big debate. And, uh, you know, kind of in my earlier years, I probably would have been much more quicker to defend intellectual property. Um, I'm becoming less so. I think the the more you can tie it to something clearly physical and so so like uh, pharmaceuticals because it's got a specific chemical kind of combination you can say that's the boundary of it but even there you know you just can change a little bit of it and it almost does the same kind of thing and are you competing or not but but the idea that you can create something that's physical and then set up the boundaries, then you can come up with the rules of saying, All right, we'll give you a patent on it for a certain amount of time and this is kind of the incentive to create new ones of these. But if it comes more and more abstract without physical things, without well defined boundaries, like in art, <laughs> I'm a little less inclined towards those kind of things. And or in particular, extending them for, you know, tens to almost hundreds Know, almost 90 to 100 years now so um, you know, that though that gets a little I'm not con- as convinced that that's as useful to producing new knowledge having those kind of boundaries um, even though and even there kind of there's these fair use doctrines that come out they're all trying to kind of manage that distinction that if you're if you create something new, so you take an idea, but you do something new with it, again, it's just like a tool. Like I created something new, I can call that mine, even though I built upon other people's work or other people's things, we're gonna kind of create that. But it still doesn't solve the problem of what's new. How do we define that boundary uh, uh, of that idea has been changed and created. But somehow we, we kind of know it when we see it. and. It's kind of, we're going to develop customs around how to settle that. Or if it's big enough, we'll have the legislature or courts decide those kind of things.
0: Yeah. So does studying things like property, exchange, specialization, the kinds of things we've been talking about, does it give us new insights into aspects of human sociality, like, for example, how people cooperate, how they organize into different groups and things like that?
1: Well. for me, I never thought of when I first started property, that the idea of property was to provide peace. And I think that is at the core of social science. How is it that we get people to get along with each other? Anthropology looks at that question, psychology looks at that question, political science looks at that question. And economics is a little late to the game, we kind of lost it somewhere along the way between the 1700s and the 20th century. But we're going back in that direction, uh, and it's all about how we get along. And property is one core piece of how we get along, and so um, it, it cooperation is about not fighting, and destroying stuff because we have these unsure um, claims out there or un un unrespected claims, and so in that sense, I think it makes it. About cooperation
0: because it's about peace. Mm-hmm. So, so the the central theme there is trying to achieve peace.
1: That's yes, and, and, and that in itself is not different than like other animals, right? So, bucks will have these little antler clashing fights to kind of see who's fit but they don't kill each other, right? They can't, they could kill each other. But then what would happen? They die off and they don't reproduce. So they're going to come up with these and then so they don't even clash, they just kind of pace back and forth. And then they go and they're like, Oh, that one might be a little bigger, and they go off. And so they'll develop ways to avoid getting into actual conflict that then means they don't reproduce. So humans have stumbled upon this same thing called property, we just apply abstract thought to it to minimize these bumping into each other. And so it's a, and it, when we articulate those rules uh, and make it become clear, then we can avoid it, we can move around and navigate, and we don't get into unnecessary kind of wasteful activities of, of destroying things in, our, in these claims
0: could anarchy work in any way and if so I mean what form of anarchy <laughs> so, uh,
1: i i had i um, just taught a class with some with um, some undergraduates when we reread the book and and this student came out of it the idea of like oh well maybe anarchy is the way to go and I find it really interesting because I didn't have anarchy in the back of my mind when writing this book like that's just um, kind of not kind of the thought where i come from and so that you've brought this up a student has brought this up yeah but somehow this kind of is is raising a question i for me uh if you think of anarchy as just not centralized governmental uh decision making um when i think the point of the book is that whatever that you have have that. It has to rest on something that's non-governmental. It's built upon communities. It's built upon the individual dealing with those communities. Whether or not that scales up is a whole nother problem. And I, I think the scaling up to having a, this idea of a state and, and a or, that's run by a government and organized in a particular way is coming out of a problem of trying to take advantage of specialization and exchange at these millions, billions. billions of people's scale that was something new. And so can anarchy work? My my un unreflective position is <laughs> that uh, I don't know if it really scales up well, uh, but the principles at core, I think are in some sense being lost in the modern language. That if we talk about everything in terms of rights and we kind of ignore what happens at the individual dealing with their community and to the exclusion of thinking about how communities deal with things, then I think we are, we're missing a core part of the problem. And so I don't know if I'll go all the way, can anarchy work, but I, would, I think there's something about understanding the world in anarchy that will then complement how you would understand the world without anarchy.
0: Right, okay, so uh, I think this will be my final question. In economics, people talk a lot about preferences, but when it comes specifically to social preferences, is preferences the best way to think about that? No.
1: I say that in jest. Um, so, I mean, so I wrote an article 10 years ago now, or 11 years ago, probably, um, called social preferences aren't preferences. Uh, I, I need to re I need to revisit that article and and kind of, I was at the beginnings at the time of of pushing back on this notion about preferences, we treat preferences, as as Vernon Smith called it in 1985, the primeval cause. And And I think that's what's wrong. If, we, if you think of primeval causes starting with preferences and that's because that's how we model them, then I think we're gonna misunderstand the actual problem and not actually think about what, what is the question to be asked. So preferences are this convenient way of starting point, but they're not actually how things work. So, so social preferences where I care about other people, like this is not new to humankind, right? and yet our economic modeling is built like oh this is something new let's add this in like no no no. humans have been getting along and been social for long before there were this notion of preferences (laughs) and 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 so what preferences is shorthand for is all this learning from my schoolmates and from my parents about how i get along with people and when i give it a name like a social preference say for fairness. It's not distinct from what I actually do. And so, but the way our modeling works is we have preferences which lead to actions which interact with other people that lead to outcomes. And it's like there's three distinct features here. But when I call something fairness, it's as a whole, it's with how all the reasons why I acted. It involves the action itself, and it, means consequences of the action and that whole thing together is what we're then calling fairness or inequity or inequality or um, justice, just and things, all these very um, high level concepts, but you don't get those just from a preference for it. So I'll give you an example, kind of an, an extreme one, but we don't prefer, say, I prefer death to tyranny. Give me the American phrase, give me liberty or give me death. Something is lost there. And if I say just, I prefer death to uh, tyranny. Um, uh, There's something missing there. And it's the whole context that comes about it. And social preferences lack context, they lack the history that was in the person that led them to want to treat people fairly, to treat people equally to treat them justly, is left out if you just start calling it social preferences, because that's the thing that needs to be explained. Why do I care about being fair? Just deposit a preference for it doesn't explain why it's there. And why and this occasion, I apply it. And it gets applied as a part of a custom. And all the circumstances around it that we learn how to then decide, oh, that's what it called being fair. Oh, that's what's called being just. And so social preferences just wants to sidetrack that and kind of skip the actual interesting part of being social. Right. So that's my argument against there's this thing called social preferences, because it's not even the right question to ask.
0: Mm -hmm. So I have one more question. Since we've been talking about property and all of those kinds of things, um, what do you think about the sharing economy? Do you think that that could work on on a large scale or not?
1: Well, think of what the sharing economy, it's called sharing economy, it gives you these warm and fuzzy feelings. But what you're basically saying is, I can call my car, I can turn that cap, I can turn that Consumer good into a capital good and make everyone better off. Me better off, the riders better off, things like that. And so it's called sharing, but it's really a new way of taking what I call mine and turning it and making it productive. And so technology that allows us to do that means we're gonna spend less money building cars. Because now there's more, less cars just sitting around in a garage <laughs> and cars being built for cabs. Now we're just going to have fewer cars and all those resources that went into building physical cars, doing something more productive. And so but at its core, it starts with mine, it's my car, it's my time and I and it's, um, and it's an exchange with somebody else in order to make them better off. So the sharing economy is built upon property.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so again, the book is, and I have it here, The Property, Species, mine Years, and the Human Mind. Um, before we go, would you like to mention any places on the internet where people can find you and your work?
1: Sure, I have a brand new website, uh, bartjwilson.com. Um, and if you just type Bart Wilson into Google, it should come up there in the top four, or you'll certainly see my kind of, my web is at, at Chapman University in the law school and in the business school.
0: Okay, great. So I will include that in the description box of the interview. And Bart, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time.
1: Thank you for inviting me. This has been great fun
0: hello everybody thank you for watching this interview until the end my channel is now more than three years old and to keep it sustainable i would like to ask you to please visit my patreon page and to consider making a pledge there if you prefer paypal you can also find links to it in the description box of this interview otherwise and if you like what i'm doing please share it leave a like and hit the subscription button this show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Pereira Galarsson, Laura Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anian Kata, Jacob Clinkby, Matthew Whittingpur, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Baron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Muller, Herbert Quintis, Rutger Voss. Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassi, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Pinha, Phil Corey Clark, Mark Life, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andrew, F. T. Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Kussen, Yevan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrant, Oslem Bulut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T., Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J. W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yacila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonha Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B., Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafinia, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Muller, Vega Gidi, Sardas France, and Niruban Balachandran. And finally, my executive producers, Michel Ruzieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.